Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today, joined by the Holy Spirit, hopefully, to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, note that the email address will be spelled out on any of our social media platforms, so you can utilize that at any time. And also note as well, if you're out and about on the road, the email address will be the ideal place if perhaps there is a follow-up to a question that was answered on the program you'd like clarification on, or perhaps you have the opportunity to send a question, but it's not currently live and during on the broadcast. You will utilize the internet later, and of course, not when we're streaming. You can still send your questions to us there at, again, questions, F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. And you can get that spelled out for you on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That is C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you'll be sent to where we are streaming every single weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. Note as well, if you want to join us on social media, our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. You can join us on either of those platforms to not only send questions during the live stream, but under the eventual and ongoing reality that they don't like what we have to say and we aren't able to stream there anymore, you can still join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Looking forward to receiving your questions, and note that the questions that I'll be answering for the interim is going to, of course, involve the Bible, sincerity, and questions asked in the form of questions. Note that sincerity means you want to hear the answer. The Bible, meaning the substance of the question as well as the answer, will be acceptable, and that the topic matter that we'll be addressing are answering questions. So if you have comments, feel free to do so, but note uh, it's not as if we're dismissing you. We just won't address them. We'll let the uh, I guess, comment exists in the ether at its own will and for its own merit. And speaking of merit, we don't want to share anything that the Lord doesn't equip any of us to first share, so pray along with me, and hopefully the Lord will take this uh, broadcast and use something with it. Dad, thank you that we have the honor of being a part of this work you're doing, not just in sharing your word, but clarifying it and making it relevant to your people as they're taking the time to listen. It is not an honor I take for granted, and so I want to ask that the opportunity and influence that you've given to me in the lives of these people would be only because your word is shared. Allow that to be what is ultimately done here today. Let your spirit ultimately glorify your son through your word, and we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so starting us off with the usual, we, of course, uh, will prolong prophecy updates till Wednesday when Pastor Scott can join us. He is, of course, indisposed at the moment. It is a not technically holy day here in the United States, but since I'm the only one on our church staff that's single, I'm 
in handling the skeleton crew here. We still, of course, will be receiving your questions and in taking the time to get you the chance to send them in. I wanted to start off with a very interesting topic that was brought up to me. I guess uh, in the social interactions we tend to have with people on the, uh, I guess, not clock, but in our daily opportunities to bear witness to the gospel. The individual, who will remain anonymous for the sake of the fact I was never given their name, uh, made the interesting observation that we need to keep, this we was referring to me, the Christian nonsense out of Judaism, and then went on to say that we wouldn't uh, associate Jesus with Islam, and so we shouldn't do it with Judaism, which was ironic to me because Islam is associated with Jesus, albeit a false Jesus, and you can feel free to ask about that relevance in a moment. But when it comes to ministering to the Jewish community, while as far as a ethnic demographic goes, a larger percentage of them, not a larger number, but a larger percentage of them are believers in the Jewish Messiah than any other ethnic group out there. But with that still being said, you're going to find a very passionate, vehement, and uh, without a doubt, a very difficult ministry to the Jewish community when dealing with their Messiah, which seems kind of odd, because when people disassociate Jesus from Judaism, they're forgetting some fundamental facts about Christianity that I want to inform you all of here today. When, and this will be the question, you're given the objection that Jesus and Judaism are two entirely separate things. Well, it is true that individual Jews reject Jesus' claim to be their Messiah, Christianity, apart from Orthodox Judaism itself, is probably the most Jewish religion out there, and how would I verify that? Well, we can obviously go to the obvious. If you go to the first chapter of the first verse of our New Testament, this is in conglomeration with their Bible, what they call the Kethuvim, the, or not the Kethuvim, the Tanakh, the Kethuvim, the Nevavim, and the Torah are what make up the Old Testament, as we Christians refer to it. It literally starts our testament of Jesus with this statement. This is the genealogy. Why would that be relevant? It was in order to verify Jesus as the Christ. Christ is, of course, a Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, and Mashiach is, of course, Messiah, the Anointed One. This is in reference to, again, the Jewish scriptures, in reference to the one who would be anointed as the Eternal king of Israel. This is in reference to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, involving the prophecy spoken over King David. It's also interesting, when we ask why was Jesus given his genealogy, his family history, Matthews was specifically through Joseph, we are given evidence of him not only being the Messiah, but being the Jewish Messiah, by explaining that he was the son of Abraham, one of the qualifiers of being a Hebrew or a Jewish individual, and the son of David. That was Israel's third or fourth, the exact number would elude me at the moment, but greatest, as far as spiritual influence, king of Israel. 
only one that would be also noted as a prophet. You can read that in 1 Kings chapter 1. But what's also important to note is, again, when you go through the book of Hebrews and the constant allusions to the Old Testament, the entire crux and emphasis of Matthew is with a Jewish audience in mind that it might be fulfilled, is that theme that's reiterated throughout the entirety of it. You can go point by point through all of these themes and note that the original followers of Jesus were all Jewish. It was only their associates that started to branch out into Gentile groups, Gentile meaning non-Jewish people. We can note the interesting facets and details of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah from entirely Jewish sources. We can go into the interesting phenomena that we can associate with the prophecies concerning the Messiah, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Zechariah 3, well, basically the whole book is Zechariah, but many as well in that regard. We can get into the issues with modern rabbis, semantic arguments as far as, well, that doesn't mean what it says, or if you twist this Hebrew word around here, that will ultimately suffice in dodging the question. But I think the most important thing that's going to need to be kept in mind when ministering to a Jewish audience isn't, of course, the information you provide or even the quality thereof, because according to the book of Romans chapter 11, 9 through 11 is the full conversation. But there is a spiritual issue, a spiritual component to their rejection of the Messiah that's at work here. And so, obviously, having a reason for the hope that is within you, being asked by a Jewish audience among any other is important. Being able to know that Christianity is a claim on Judaism, not vice versa. And, of course, when we're talking to people about these issues that we know enough about Judaism to engage effectively with them, the most important component to ministering to the Jewish community has to and always will be prayer, because when it ultimately comes down to it, the only one who changes hearts and minds is the Holy Spirit, and this is the same that's true for us. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, we're told that no one speaking by the Spirit of God is going to call Jesus accursed. That's obvious. God's not going to contradict his word. He reveals his son, and then he speaks uh, basically out of both sides of his non-existent mouth in saying, well, that is, of course, also not true and true at the same time. God's going to be consistent. But the verse goes on to say, no one calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit, which is the desire that we would have for everybody, Jewish or not. And this is the point. When you're ministering to somebody and it seems like you're hitting a brick wall, understand that that's not necessarily a mark against your ability to make a sound argument. It may be, in fact, the case that you need to think these things through a little more. Listen before you talk. You've been given two ears, one mouth. Use proportionately, as our dearly glorified uh, brother Romaine would observe. But the point is still the same. If you're going to talk to anyone about the gospel, especially those that the spirit of the age has blinded, make sure that it's ultimately brought before the throne of God, because as the slogan goes, it does far more good to plead with God about men than men about God. So make sure that that's what's ultimately kept in mind, that you're familiar with the common objections, and I can give you two just right off the bat. If you'd like the answer to them, feel free to ask, and we'll dedicate some time on the broadcast to do that as well. 
but make sure that these things are kept in mind. When the objection to Psalm 22 notes the piercing of my hands and my feet, this is obviously a 1,000-year B.C. allusion to crucifixion in regards to the death the Messiah would suffer. You need to be able to at least acknowledge and go into detail about that point when modern rabbis would twist the passage and say, no, that's not pierce my hands and my feet. It would say, like a lion, my hands and my feet. Go through the passage and make the effort to at least hear their arguments based on their merit and see if it makes sense, because these will be the issues that you hear. Another one would be not necessarily a Hebrew objection, but more an application and definition objection. In Isaiah 53, the famous suffering servant passage, modern rabbis and, of course, their faithful students will say this has no relation to Jesus or even the Messiah proper. It's only a reference to Israel as a whole being redeemed from their accursed state before God, which Isaiah was prophesying to Israel. We can go into secondary issues as well in noting that the short-term prophecy of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son in Isaiah chapter 7 is not referencing the Messiah. It was only a prophecy that applied to Isaiah's time. We've answered that on the broadcast before. Maybe do a little homework if you don't want to ask about it in more detail. And I, of course, welcome it on the broadcast. But the biggest issue, and maybe you've seen Phil or on the roof or any of the other issues uh, that Jews, of course, would have if they're rejecting a personal relationship, even with their own God, let alone their Messiah, is going to be the philosophical problem of evil. Why would God allow our people, if we're the chosen and anointed people of God, to go through so much suffering over the ages? Certainly not limited to the Holocaust, but including that as well. We can go into the pogroms, we can go to the persecution at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church and the pagan nations as well. We can go into all the opposition you faced, and they will use this as reason to reject a relationship with God. If you would like to know the answers to these objections, feel free, but keep those five objections in mind when speaking to a Jewish audience, and we will hopefully have uh, sent you along your way with enough homework to lead to productive conversations. It's not as if these things are all too, uh, I guess, inconsistent. You're going to find that almost all of these things are going to end up being slogans and uh, reiterations of the same old, same old. That's why this broadcast gets easier and easier. If you can answer the same 15 questions over and over again, you're set. But going out to your questions now, we want to start with the question from Casey, who uh, first gives a caveat. I'm sorry to ask you to answer a question you've answered before. It's no problem, Casey. As Paul himself said, to repeat these things is not tiresome for me, it's needful for you. Just make sure it's not the same question every single broadcast from you. Then we start to wonder if you're listening. But the point being made is this. Um, her dad asked her a question, and he wasn't satisfied with my answer. Isn't that always the objective? <laughs> He's a skeptic, and I was hoping you could give him an answer. He wants to know why God allowed Adam and Eve to sin. If he knew everything that was going to happen, then why did he create them with the will to do evil. Let me first clarify the phrase in that question, because if that's how it was framed, that's not what the Bible claims. But with all that being said, we'll deal with this issue of if God 
put Adam and Eve in a position where they were going to hurt themselves? Is this a case of criminal negligence? Is this a case of them being set up to fail? Was it God's will for them to sin, as many anti-theists would caricature God as doing? And if so, then is he morally culpable for all the evil he caused, if not indirectly? Why did he create them with the will to do evil? That's not the claim, and if this is the issue that was brought up with your father, Casey, that's not the claim that Christianity makes as far as the origins of mankind. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who was himself an observant Jew and a very wise man at that, you can maybe look into more details about it, but for your father's sake, just note the guy was a scholar par excellence around 900 BC, very close to and very steeped in the Jewish traditions that involved Adam and Eve. And what was interesting about this exchange is that when he made this observation about mankind's fallenness with the origins of original sin in mind, he said that God made man upright, but he has sought after many devices. When we're talking about original sin, we're not talking about just this introduction of people with the forbidden fruit dangled in front of their faces and God kind of poking and prodding, or rather enabling the serpent to come and tempt them, creating Satan with the full desire and not only intent but opportunity to commit evil, and then basically just letting the cards fall exactly where he set them up, or the dominoes to fall exactly where he stacked them up together. The opposite is the case. When we say that God created man with the will to do evil, that would be a misinformed perspective. We believe that God created man with the will to choose what is good, but also understand with the capacity to choose good if that was not going to be an automaton status, that we only have one option. The decision to choose not good, the definition of evil, also had to not only be equally as available, but also equally as respected as far as the consequences. So what did God do? Did he make Adam and Eve and then set them up to fail? No, in fact, he gave them the first and only law, and note, speaking to an audience that had only ever known good and that by nature was not fallen and sinful like we are here today. They were enabled with full and complete access to God, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, that they walked with him the cool of the day, that they had complete access to all the trees of the garden with one exception, and we can't be, and I'm trying, I don't mean to use fancy words here, but I'm trying to be accurate in the words that I use. I'll explain. It would be anachronistic, meaning read into something that was introduced later, not at that time. The tendency that we have of saying, don't do this, as the greatest allure and desire for us from that time onward. Adam and Eve didn't have that problem. They were created, as Ecclesiastes observes, and as Genesis 2 clarifies, upright, that they were perfect in nature, but then willingly, with the free will given to them, chose to use it to reject what was presented to them, to reject the laws and information that was given to them, to reject the thing that they had and always had and had every reason to continue to have as the source of everything good. The fact that, and this is an important thing to keep in mind, not necessarily to bring up because they won't get it, but always something to keep in mind when it comes to these kind of objections is the underlying assertion, not just 
attributing motive on God's part, giving him malice when none exists, but also attributing fallen sinful human nature to mankind universally all the way back to its inception. And that's the first thing that I'd clarify, Casey. The Bible makes no such claims. We are created perfect in our fellowship with God and the execution thereof. What we're trying to be brought back to is that state through the finished work of Jesus Christ in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting about this is that, again, someone who doesn't know it wouldn't have any hope for it, but also probably not have any awareness of it as well. Make sure that you keep those things in mind when these sort of questions come up, and you can clarify the question before you start to give uh, answers that, as you said, were unsatisfactory. But then that being said, the issue of God being an enabler. This is the thing that you need to keep in mind, not just attributing motive, but also the concern that a lot of people have about God's nature, in that if he were to give us something that has a wrong answer, that somehow our response to it is his fault. I mean, I could appreciate that logic maybe when I was in second grade and I didn't even do the assignment. Then I blame the teacher for saying, if you gave me a test that I could get an F on, then it's your fault for being a bad teacher. It doesn't take uh, astrophysics and philosophy degree to see the immaturity and problem with that. But the concern that a lot of people have is, why would God allow the serpent into the garden? And this is the whole point. You have to bring with that three very false assumptions. First, that God created Satan to fall. He didn't. He was created as the anointed cherub, according to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, a beautiful and wise creature, exalted in creation and capable of not only reflecting, but expressing the glory of God more than any other creature, including mankind itself. And with the capacity to recognize that, he also was respected in his capacity to reject it. Once again, the opportunity to make a wrong decision and respecting that decision is not God's fault. Creating us with the capacity for the highest good, and this will lead into the ultimate answer to this question, but I want to lead into it so I've covered all my bases, is just that. We can't fault a decision and the capacity to do so with the one who gave us the ability to make decisions unless I can show that they are setting me up to fail. And this is the problem. God did the opposite. He gave Lucifer full opportunity to see his glory, know his goodness, and he made a wrong decision. We saw Adam and Eve put in the garden every need provided for, purpose, meaning, fellowship, relationships, to my fellow men, a naked girl. You get the point. It was all good. But then, given the opportunity to rebel, we know Eve was deceived, but we note also in Romans 5, Adam was the one who consciously chose to rebel knowing better, and then contradicting God's word without even prompting from the serpent. And this is the point. That was their decision. Their decision and the consequences thereof were what they were held accountable to based on what they knew. And we see this is always God's policy. Read Romans 1 through 2 if you want further clarification on this point. But that's what's being built up here, is if I look at God kind of, you know, grooving the sand, so to speak, so that the water flows just the way that he wants it to, I'm 
mistaken in my capacity, or at least it's the information I have, to understand the purposes of God given all that I know about him. Someone who is good by nature, as we're told in the book of James, does not tempt anyone with evil, nor is he tempted. That would be a false assertion on God's part by nature. If we note God creating someone to do evil, that directly contradicts what we're told about God in Scripture. See Ecclesiastes and other passages noting God created man and the angels, by the way, with the full capacity to enjoy him to its fullest. But note that when he created this world, and this will be the final point I make to this, and maybe you can pass this along to your father, we'll see if it's satisfactory or not, but see the first question, this is a spiritual issue, so pray for him as well. When God, and by the way, this was explained more eloquently and more qualified by William Lane Craig in reasonablefaith.org. You can see this argument presented there as well. But he makes this case essentially in kind of the Sherlock Holmes style of alternatives. God could have created three possible worlds. I'm condensing it for the sake of time and your attention span. He could have created no world. If the world as we knew it, as something other than God, existed, then by definition that would not be something perfect by nature. So if nothing other than God exists, then there would only be absolute goodness, what we mean by God. The moral nature, the moral law, the moral imperative, that's based on God's nature. If he were to create something apart from himself, then it would either have to be a only capable of reflecting his attributes, we'll talk about that in a second, or it would have to be literally just him. <laughs> it would be nothing at all apart from what was already there. The other kind of world he could have created, the second type of world, no world, he could have created a world where there was no possibility of evil, so no deviation from what is good, but once again, how would that be any different than what was already there? That God, having existed from eternity, would literally just be expanding <laughs> and creating this physical mass, Adam and Eve included, if you will, but with no capacity to make the wrong decision, we would say, well, you're not a good parent unless you helicopter parent your kids and their every thought is only capable of eating healthy things and doing good. Well, that's not only creepy, but that's also illogical. If we're asking for God to create a world where there were no wrong answers, then either A, you're being lazy, or we're going back to the second grade logic. How dare you make a test that I could get wrong? Well, if maybe if you'd studied and knew the information available, this is the point. And that's where we get to the third world, the world we have here today. With the capacity to choose evil, but also with the capacity to choose that good. And this is the world that we see. If God were to create a world with the capacity for the highest possible virtue that would also incur with it, which God can't help but do, the greatest possible being can't help but do the greatest possible thing, do the sort of thing that would introduce to this world things other than himself, things that are by default evil, not good by nature, but with the capacity to choose and enjoy that goodness, and also to create the possibility of evil. But here's where we get into the bump in the in the uh, proverbial road, so to speak. Ah, so you're saying that the moment God creates something other than himself, you've created evil. Why did God create us with the will to do evil? Well, once again, you're misunderstanding given the nature of God, because if he 
enabled Adam and Eve with every possible reason to follow him, and they said no, what then would be this oper- What would be God's option then to do? Well, once again, this is building on Dr. Craig's point. He would then have two options, to glorify his justice or to glorify his mercy. In justice, he could have judged us by preventing the possibility of evil, by wiping Adam and Eve out at the source. The human race wouldn't branch out and express evil as we see it today in all of these various ways. That the cutting off of something that is by nature in rebellion against him isn't morally unjust. But we look at the evil in this world and see God is allowing it to happen. So has he then glorified as mercy? Notice I phrase that in the form of a question. And the answer is, to a point, yes. He did not judge Adam and Eve according to the actions and the consequences that were directly spelled out to them. They were given a curse and also immediately following a promise of their reconciliation. More on that in a second. But instead of them dying, as he said they would in Genesis chapter 2, he chose to sacrifice an animal. In this case, uh, there's uh, theories as to what it was used, but they were given clothes of skin, which means something had to die. And this was also something that Adam passed on to his children, Cain and Abel, the ones that were named about. And they also were performing these sacrifices. And this is the point. With this anticipation and expectation of mercy, also note, were there still consequences? Yes. Humanity, as we see it today, can go the route of Cain or it can go the route of Seth, to call on the Lord for mercy or to reject the Lord and uh, see the consequences unfold in the span of our lives. And this is the whole point. Was mercy what God glorified? Again, I said yes to a point, but what else was glorified? Also justice. God can't help but do the greatest possible thing. So in building up this narrative, if you will, of the perfect being interacting with a willfully, on its own, imperfect creation, and God knowing, as Revelation 13 says, everything that would happen from the beginning, what would God do? See to it that evil would flourish? Or, as I'm citing, the lamb slain, from the foundation of the world. We don't have a God that just set us up to fail and allowed us to stew in it. We don't have a God who let us destroy ourselves and then just pointed and laughed and saying, I told you so, and then moved on. We have a God who, in a moment of verifiable human history, and Casey, this is always what every conversation about Christianity proper should lead you to, who didn't distance himself from our suffering, the suffering we, by our will, given to us by God for the intended purpose of enjoying him, instead to separate ourselves from him, subjected himself to the consequences of our separation, willingly became a part of those consequences. And taking, Romans chapter 5 tells us, the fullness of those consequences on himself has not only provided a means of 
restoration, but also the finalization of the other attribute of God that was established here, that being justice. Now, how is that done? Well, note that at the end of the day, in the way that God has allowed things to transpire, we don't see all of mankind punished or judged. That was what we would expect if mankind was created with the will to do evil. That was God's only purpose. If, on the other hand, with the capacity to do good, and also the capacity to not do good, that's the definition of having a will, we then note, at the end of everything, two types of people. Those who've received God's mercy and been glorified through it, or those who have received God's justice, and rightly so, for the decisions they made not the decisions that God set us up to make just because he knew the answer. And this is, again, an illustration, but it hopefully clarifies the point. Me having seen a movie before doesn't make me the director. Me having read a book before doesn't mean that I'm responsible for the conclusion of the plot. Me even knowing how each character, as a writer, is going to enact these decisions through and through the purpose of the story, the author in mind, is for the ultimate moral to be reached, not necessarily to inflict suffering on those characters. Now, you can be a bad writer, but once again, is this the kind of God we mean, the one that dictated every decision that we will make from start to finish? The answer would be, to a point, no. And that's the whole emphasis that this false assumption leads you down the mindset of. We do believe in a God who is sovereign, but we also believe a God who is sovereignly able to allow for free will. Otherwise, there would literally be no purpose to creation, and this is the point that we're making. So, Casey, when talking to your father, make sure that you clarify, A, the phrasing of the question, B, the assumptions behind the question, and three, factor Jesus into the conversation. Because if we are created with the intent to do evil, the will to do evil, why is it when he showed up as a man, that's not how it worked, that we saw the fullness of everything we were meant to be and will be when his work is finished in us, as someone who had no will to do evil. He was tempted by it due to the effects of sin, but notice once again, our choice, not his. You can point out the nonsense of saying, if there's a possibility for there being a wrong answer, then it's God's fault, as if that's, again, further than second-grade thinking. Make sure that the, the questions are phrased properly, then satisfactory answers can be given. Let me know if that helps you out. Speaking of uh, parental issues, got a question from Isaiah who said, why did David not mourn for Absalom the same way he mourned his unborn son? He said, I shall go to him, he shall not come to me. But with Absalom, it was different. Uh, Isaiah, actually, it wasn't different at first. And if you read Second Samuel and note the aftermath of the incident with Absalom, he was grieving after his coup d'etat failed, and his nephew, ironically enough, Joab, who if you know the account of First and Second Samuel, no, wasn't a nice guy, had to tell him, get off your face, clean yourself, and show your troops that the things that they were fighting and dying for concerning you weren't all for nothing. David obviously is a loving father, to a point. He was imperfect because the whole situation with Absalom was because of his negligence of his daughter, but that's another issue. All these things were being set up, and when David finally, unfortunately, by the way, it wasn't by David's hand, it was a 
was a rather grisly uh, account. I am a guy, so I'll be happy to share it. But the point is just that Absalom had a, a luscious locks of hair. And uh, when he was riding in retreat to a successful military endeavor that David and his armies were able to pull off, uh, he got his hair caught in some branches and, of course, got knocked out in the process. The donkey kept running, but he was just dangling there by his head. When Joab and his posse uh, found him, it's just like, this is the guy that's literally driven us out of our kingdom, who's been threatening our lives and rallying the whole nation against us, giving my spear, and they impaled him more than once in this state. So with the death of the political opposition to King David's empire or his uh, kingdom, he of course could return to Jerusalem. The armies were victorious and they were expecting their king to be like, hey, you've regained the kingdom. We didn't fight for nothing. We've won this war. But David being just as grieved about the death of any of his sons, let alone the the newly born rather son. Remember the unborn son was born and then he died in infancy. Absalom, when he was killed, he still grieved for it, and it wasn't the time for that. Joab had to uh, call him to account for that. But no, read the account in 2 Samuel. It's in, in its entirety, Isaiah, he did mourn them both, and that's the point. But unfortunately, with one, he was brought into perspective because of a proper spiritual perspective, whereas the other, this was just a whole disaster and result of consequence, ironically, also because of the incident of that child's conception, that violence would not depart from your house. So let me know if that helps, Isaiah, but they were both mourned by David, just one was inappropriate. Um, yeah, the elders seem to reiterate that in the comment section. Seems like a conversation's ongoing. But with that being said, uh, question from no name, I guess building on this point, I thought that God the Father knew in eternity before we took every took form, every decision and action we would take in our lives and our all-not occurrences within God's will, just my will and judgments out of alignment. Once again, you're granting the whole point we're making here, no name. When we're discussing the issue of God's will, we're not saying God caused. Obviously, God willed the creation into existence, but it's also the same point in saying, does God will us to sin? You have to examine that biblically. God doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by sin, so that doesn't fit. But if, on the other hand, I consider, oh, God knowing about these things, and again, I'm not getting into open theism here. I'm just making the point of moral culpability. God doesn't cause us to do evil, because that flies directly in the face of what we also know about God in Scripture. Make sure that that's kept in full consideration. Um, here's a question on our YouTube page. I can't read the username, but this is a high-pressure situation, so I have anyone to help me take a breath. Why did Elijah have such supernatural abilities at work through him? Well, good question. The reason why anyone was given any supernatural influence, and I would even hesitate to say abilities because that suggests it's from them, is because whenever God's Word was being revealed, that was one of the necessary components as to why we take them seriously. Look this up in Deuteronomy chapter 18, but one of the things by which you would test a prophet of God, someone who's speaking on behalf of God, is just that. They have to be able to not only get their facts straight, keep their gods straight, also be accountable, if they didn't do any of those things, to be 
literally killed with rocks, so not a lot of incentive to lie, but also had to verify these things, Deuteronomy 13 as well, with publicly verified miracles. And the book of Deuteronomy ends by clarifying that's why we trusted Moses, not because he was such a great guy, but because God did such mighty works through him. So if that's then the premise, what was going on during, and I'll build up this point to your question to Elijah, the time of Moses. Well, what was being revealed at the time of Moses? Genesis, the history of Israel specifically, up until this point from creation to the Exodus. What do we have, or how they got into Egypt, rather? What do we have in the Exodus, the history of their time in Egypt, all the way to their departure and towards Mount Sinai and receiving the law? What do we have in Numbers, their wanderings in the wilderness? What do we have in Leviticus, the laws that governed them as a nation now independent from, well, literally chattel servitude in Egypt, which was prophesied to Abraham in advance, not course, God's decision on Pharaoh's part, Pharaoh's decision, and or which one he was judged with, justice, note. But then we're brought to Deuteronomy, Moses' last collection of sermons before he physically departed this world, and on it goes. So when Moses was giving all of this information to Israel, they could obviously say, well, you're getting your uh, facts and traditions in a way that can be verified geographically through the receipts of trade that we uh, discovered in Ebla, Jordan, or all of the other interesting facets about things literally a millennium before your lifetime, or uh, excuse me, uh, several centuries before your lifetime. I was... Uh, confusing the point with Abraham and the uh, judgment of the Amalekites, so forgive me. The point and emphasis on getting traditions right as far as things centuries removed from his lifetime, as far as the customs in a country entirely different from his own, when Jacob was living over in Mesopotamia and then having to come back to Canaan and his father-in-law saying, why have you taken my God? So don't you know that I could kill you for that? That is consistent with the laws that we see at work in that time, but not at work during the time of Moses, or at least dating enough long before Moses that they can be verified as accurate. He got his facts straight. Obviously, in introducing Israel to her God in ways that their patriarchs obviously knew, but that may have gotten muddled over the ages, he brings it back to Revelation. That is, of course, the first time this was done in writing. And with that, then, as the source of information, they trusted it, not because I'm Moses and I said so. I'm Charlton Heston for my sake, right? Now, it's look at the things God is doing. And you can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. By these signs, they'll know that I am the one that is speaking through you. So what then does that set? That's called a trend. Why did Joshua get accepted as the new leader of Israel? The crossing of the Jordan River, victories over Jericho in a uh, very not natural <laughs> military expedition, the hailstones that fought more of their battles than anything else, and on it goes. The fulfillment of these signs, the miraculous nature of it was needed in order for them to be trusted as spokesmen of God. Why were the judges trusted? Not just because these people won victories that they shouldn't have won, but also, specifically in the cases of Samson and others, the fact that God was working these signs through him. Why should I listen to you? Oh, that's why. And on it goes. So we bring ourselves from the time of Moses to the time of Elijah, that's around maybe 500 years or so, that, that's a guesstimate on my part. 
we see a guy who's giving more information to Israel. And as the time of these prophets is all taking place, again, Elijah would set the tone for what we read in the Nevavim, the prophets going forward. There's some that argue Joel was earlier than him, but that's just side trivia. When Elijah was performing these miracles, it was at a time in Israel's history where they weren't reading his word. Remember that he wasn't necessarily woofing when he assumed that the entire nation had fallen into idol worship and the worship of Baal. The rediscovery of the law in the temple of God was an important event in King Josiah's reign, but from the time of Manasseh onward, understand that this time frame that we're seeing in Judah, also look in the northern kingdoms that Elijah was ministering to, and you're like, man, time that Queen Jezebel was running things, that was, uh, well, that makes our administration look like the Reagans, right? This was totally chaos, totally separate from their knowledge of God. And so when these people were gathered together on Mount Carmel, and he called down fire from heaven in a way that Baal couldn't, that was to verify you trust this God, not those false gods that aren't even gods. We could note even before that, why did King Ahab get those three and a half years of no rain just because the prophet said so? Well, because it wasn't the prophet who said so. It was God who said so, and the prophet was communicating that. He needed to know that God was there, and because he had no will or access to God's word at this time, they were given miracles to verify that. That's how God always backs up his word with deeds. So why were they so supernaturally charged, if you will? Because just like going all the way to the time of Jesus, his word was being revealed. This is why you trust this as opposed to that. That's why you believe this as opposed to those claims about me. And that's the whole point. Why was Jeremiah trusted as a prophet of God when all the other prophets of God in the book were claiming the opposite? Because he was the only one performing miracles, making these predictions, <laughs> ironically enough, in certain situations of their deaths within a year. And that is the point that goes on. So Elijah was speaking at a time where they had no access, or at least will to access God's word. The priests of God were in persecution or in hiding. Jezebel, as the real head on the throne, so to speak, was, of course, bringing uh, Christianity to the point we're going to see it in the future. And I'm using Christianity anachronistically, but you get the point, the belief in the God of Israel, to a point where it was inaccessible. And so Elijah performed those miracles, because that was the trend that started all the way back to Moses. And that's how Israel would recognize God was speaking. I'd say it's pretty fair. Let me know if that answers your question. Uh, question from Yari, who wants to know, is it okay for me to take on someone else's mantle? Speaking of Elijah. Is this biblical? So someone says the so-called gift of prophecy, do they need an Elijah spirit to mentor them? They, he's heard this at a Pentecostal church. Yeah, I bet you have, Yari. Um, biblical, as in it's in the Bible, yes, but as far as it being biblically based, relevant, and applied in proper context, the only time, and again, the elder can correct me in the comments if I'm wrong, he's listening, he's at home, but as far as the passing on of a mantle, the spirit that Elisha, Elijah's disciple, requested from him that was represented by his mantle, and this prophetic mantle was basically the sash that would be identified as the one who was servicing as the prophet of God at the time, it's passed down to many. But when we're talking about the people who functioned as prophets of God, 
we can tell from people like Micaiah and plenty of others that there were a lot more people speaking at this time than just, oh, it was just Isaiah. Micah was speaking at the same time as well. Oh, it was just Elijah. No, there were several thousand people <laughs> who were being used by God at this time as well. He just didn't know about it. So when we're reading these things in God's Word, just like with the Gospel accounts, we're not reading everything that Jesus ever said and did, but these things so that we know God was still working and what was being shared by everybody who was servicing at that time. So when we asked about the mantle, that's, again, go to Second Kings chapter 1, note how it was applied there. And the fact that the mantle wasn't just associated with his prophetic status, but technically in saying this singling out of his mantle, it's not like it was passed down from Moses or anything, but the miraculous ministry, that if I'm going to continue this service, this ministry for you, Elijah, I'm going to need more (laughs) than what you had if God's going to use me in the way that he's used you. And he said, hey, that's not up to me, that's up to God. And I think that's the most straightforward answer I can give on that, Yari. But if we're going to say in the covenant we're under right now, we don't have a mantle of prophets. We don't have a succession of apostles that are functioning in the world today, though cult groups would argue that. The point that we need to emphasize over and over again is that when we're talking about the necessity of miracles or these spiritual gifts that are being handed down, we're given a pretty broad strokes demonstration of them in the Old Covenant as far as who was given what and why, because as far as when God was going to reveal his word, that was kind of his business. But with the revelation of God's word, we're talking about the point of emphasis on how spiritual gifts are determined now, which isn't broad at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told explicitly, the Spirit gives to each one individually as he wills, not whether or not they've been given the mantle of this prophethood, or they have had their hands laid on by someone who is used in a gift or ministry of prophets. We know that Paul obviously mentions his laying on of hands in 2 Timothy chapter 1, but remember that was a point of emphasis for his ministry, not his spiritual gifts. And even if we were to say in broad strokes, oh, well, prophecy, that's called discipleship, and that's not something that uh, it necessarily includes with it miracles. Check the box for me. Although, the fact that I've uh, held up this long, I think, is worthy of uh, praising God six days a week and twice on Sunday, but that's uh, just a non-sequitur on the side there. Reads 1 Corinthians 12, the Spirit can decide who to give what and when and for what reason. That's his business. As far as the Old Testament mantle of prophets, again, we can look at individuals, say, during the time of the tabernacle, where artists, the people who worked with metals and fabrics to construct the tabernacle, were filled with the Spirit of God individually, as he wills. And the same is true for the New Testament, but it's very explicitly spelled out. We don't have prophets, we don't have apostles, we don't have that kind of ministry because their purpose in revealing God's Word and verifying it through miracles has finished. If we're going to see miracles today, it's going to be for that purpose, but it's not because they're the prophet, they're the apostle. They were used by the same Spirit that used those prophets in the past. Let me know if that helps you out. Um, Oh boy. Here's, uh, okay, I'll I'll leave that alone there. If you guys have questions so I don't have to pause to dead air that uh, will, of course, sound great on radio, um, 
feel free to give like a subtext, like put question next to the question, and I'll notice it. Uh, we received one off air. If salvation is only available for those who hear God's word, how will God deal with people who never get a chance to hear? Okay, fair question. What about the one who's never heard? Obviously, uh, it depends who's asking the question, because that would be a good sincerity check to bother with an answer or not, because usually the person who makes this objection is someone who's hearing God's word at that very second, and then they're trying to dodge accountability. Well, God will deal with them specifically. What about you? But if it's a genuine inquiry from a uh, fellow brother, sister in the Lord, and they just want to know, you know, the semantics because it's bothered them in their mind or something. I, I'd have no problem clarifying. As far as what the Spirit would equip me to answer that question with now, I would suffice to point you to the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 2, where it notes fairly straightforwardly that those who are judged apart from the law are judged as of having no law and then those who are judged with the law are judged by the law. So, and the law, of course, is in reference to the Old Testament, if you need the clarification of the term Paul is using. So when we're talking about someone who's never been given revelation of God, obviously the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We can put together enough pieces with our Lego box to say, okay, this all started, it has to have a starter. There's a lot of things bigger than me. And what if there is something out there bigger than me that is not only like me, but that has an intention and purpose for me? And you get the various pagan attempts and so forth. But we note that in various times and various places, there were plenty of people who were spoken to by God, and we have plenty of accounts of cultures completely cut off from Christianity or any relevant scripture, but still somehow had a working knowledge of the true and living God. And you can read missionary memoirs of them basically having the opportunity to evangelize to people, handed them on the silver platter. They just had to clarify the name in Greek, and that's pretty much all that was needed to be adjusted. They gave them Bibles, and everyone had a good time. But when we're discussing that issue to the individual who asked the question, that would be the crux of it to a sincere person who is asking the question. How is someone going to judge someone who's never heard the gospel? Well, they'll be judged based off of what God revealed to them. But I would hesitate to say that's even a possibility, because A, I believe in a God who's omnipresent, omniscient, and has a vested interest in the salvation of all since he died for all, and offers that to everybody who will believe. I do also acknowledge that God has the right to note um, no people well enough to the point where they can't be ministered to, but I wouldn't say just because you've been isolated from certain societies or have a different culture than mine, that's what fits you into that category. I don't think that the gospel is bound by borders, and you can watch my recent debate for clarification on that. But the point being made is this. Uh, Romans 2, I think, expresses it very eloquently, and Romans 1 clarifies that all have been given a revelation of God at some point, and what they do with that they'll be judged by. So I think it's a non-starter to assume there are people who exist in that category, and then I'd also go back to the precursor. If you're talking to someone who brings that up, you need to remind them, you're not in that category. What are you doing with the gospel, and how will you be judged having heard it and are delaying accountability with it? That's a, a much more pressing and relevant issue. So let me know. Again, the uh, elder asked the question, but to the one who was wondering if that is clear. Um, 
you know, good uh, conversations happening in the midst, and my ability to find questions within it are, of course, lacking. I'll make sure not to sparse this out for too long. But yeah, just let me know if you have a question by starting the comment with the word question. Uh, we got a few more minutes, so I'll defer back to our notes. We've got uh, our contradiction for the day. This is a sad one, although most of these are. Um, the Again, this is from an atheist website. The question is... <laughs> Were the Pharisees baptized by John the Baptist? Matthew 3, 7 through 11 says yes, apparently. And Luke 7, 29 through 30 says no. Let me start with the Luke one, because that's actually accurate. Luke chapter 7, verses 29 through 30 reads, And when all the people heard him, that's in reference to Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So they were able to receive the baptism of John. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and lawyers, not like legal representatives, but people who are experts on the law, that is the Old Testament, uh, rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So, John the Baptist, in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, was preparing the way, rolling out the red carpet, if you will, for the Messiah. The ones who received the Messiah heard John. The people who were rejecting Jesus also rejected John. But apparently that's contradicted in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me clarify where that was again. In Matthew 3, 7 through 11, uh, the passage reads, But when he saw many of the Pharisees, this is John the Baptist, coming to his baptism, oh, so they're in the process, not being baptized by him, coming to his baptism. How did he greet them? Brood of vipers. That's literally sons of snakes. He's, he's cussing at them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid through to the tree. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you, is that speaking to the Pharisees or to his general audience, with water unto repentance. But he was coming after me as mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's the passage they limit us to. For the sake of time, once again, what is the step in approaching these things? First of all, when someone says the Bible contradicts itself, they're making the claim it violates the second formal law of logic, the law of non-contradiction. A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel each other out. If you know what a contradiction is, then call their bluff. Step two, read the verses. And if you read Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, you would note that it doesn't mention them being baptized by John. If anything else, he mocks them for coming to his baptism insincerely. If you read into it those passages, then of course you're misrepresenting the passage, but Luke 7 was very clear. God bless you. We'll see you all tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.